Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Ishwaran Subramanian, who is a research professor of engineering and public policy at Carnegie Mellon University. His research in design was inspired by the tradition of study of design at CMU since early 1970s. His research interests are design theory, collaborative design information systems, design education, design and society, and mathematical foundations for information modeling for design. He's a co-chair of the special interest group of design theory uh, of the design society, distinguished scientist of the ACM, and a fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science. Welcome, sir. Thank you very much for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we get into your recent book, uh, I want to start with a couple of your papers to set the context. And mm -hmm. uh, the first one uh, entitled Design Theory, mm -hmm. a foundation of a new paradigm for design science and engineering, in which you say in recent years, the works on design theory have contributed to reconstruct the science of design comparable in its structure, foundations, and impact to decision theory, optimization, or game theory in their time. These works have reconstructed historical roots and the evolution of design theory, conceptualized the field at a high level of generality and uncovered theoretical foundations. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about uh, what you mean by design theory and, and its evolution? Yes. Um... You see, design theory has been there in some form or the other since Vitruvius. Yeah. It talks about how a designer should behave and what he should be trained in and so on. And if you look at the last, I mean, I won't go through the whole history. The debate in design theory itself started much more uh, pronounced way after Simon's book on the sciences of the artificial. And that's a modern version, of course. There are other versions you can think about because in Europe, engineering design was systematized and they had their own structures and ways of doing it. 
So a lot of these things, a lot of these theories, if you look at the early part of it, is to create certain structures by which we can work. And when you come to Simon, he started concentrating more on the actual process, as you may want to call it, hmm. in terms of the cognitive processes of design and also to define a new kind of rationality, which he called bounded rationality. Yeah. But if you look underneath this whole thing is that the problem is structured. It is very large. You can't search all of it. So you can only get a result which satisfies you. Mm. But then though that theory does not account for how innovation actually happens. Okay. Yes. So this is where some of the work by my colleagues in France become important because they reconceptualize design in terms of what they call CK theory, the concept knowledge theory, mm-hmm. where they argued that there is an expansion of concepts and then there is a search for knowledge when you don't have knowledge and you go through the cycle by which <clears throat> your problem is being refined and reformulated as you go along, as the knowledge comes up, uh, uh, is brought together. Yeah. So that notion of bringing together knowledge as a primary part of design and using the underlying conceptual basis is, I would say, more recent, at least in the last 50 to uh, 70 years. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you go back in time, Vitruvius will combine the social and so on. But that was from a different perspective than it is today, right? So it's, uh, it's really... We are not only bringing the analytical and the uh, creative part of design, we are also trying to bring the social part of design to conceive it uh, in its totality. And that is something you also find in science, right? If you are talking about the uh, Haldron Collider, they had to bring so many different people together mm-hmm. in order to address that problem. Right? It's, so it's this, not the technical part of design that is important, both the analytical and the larger context in which it takes place. Yeah, so if I understand this correctly, Sab, you know, would you say uh, the limitations of the human brain and, and the concept of bounded rationality, uh, this allows uh, really searching exhaustively the, the design space to look for an uh, optimum position. Mm-hmm. Uh, rather, we use heuristics and let's call them tricks uh, to get to a point that is reasonably satisfying. Mm-hmm. And um, are you arguing that, uh, that that process of getting to a satisfactory point mm-hmm. uh, really needs to take into account variety of domains and variety of types of knowledge? Yes, you're right. But the thing is that the most important point here is once you formulate the problem, you can apply the notion of optimality, bounded rationality, and so on. Mm. But you need to formulate the problem. How you formulate the problem determines the solution you will get. Yeah. Just, just to give you a very quick notion, if you look at the transportation system of Europe and transportation system of US, there are historical reasons why these two evolved in including social values as to how they evolved differently, Mm -hmm. right? It is that point that we are trying to make. It's not just a search through solution. It's even as uh, 
Rittel and Weber say it's a wicked problem always you are dealing with. And when you are dealing with it, then both the structuring of the problem and the solution of the problem evolve together. And that is dependent on what knowledge you mobilize. What knowledge you mobilize, what uh, also perhaps uh, what culture exists. And so again, uh, the transportation uh, design problem between Europe and the U.S., yeah. Uh, it's really a function of what existed in the, in those domains, right? That is what shapes a design? Yes, there is a path dependency in design, which yeah. is very important. But the path dependencies are determined not just by the technical capabilities, but historical reasons, right? If, for example, people will say railways in India got developed because of colonialism, I don't know whether it would have happened in spite of it. That's a different story, right? Yeah. I, I'm not trying to cast aspersions on anybody, but you need to understand the path dependence also, mm. right, of how technologies evolve and how they are shaped by the culture we live in. Right, right. And so in this paper, you also say that emerging from the field of engineering design, design theory development has now a growing impact in many disciplines and academic communities. Um, and so, you know, I can think about social sciences uh, like uh, economics. I can think about life sciences. Uh, mm-hmm. These are not, um, these are not really engineering problems, right? They have very high levels of nonlinearity, very high levels of uncertainty. And, and I, I would imagine the design theory is, is, um, yeah, has a lot of applications there too. Absolutely. Um, uh, I have to say it in two parts, uh, especially my colleagues in France, uh, they have used these CK concepts. They translate it into a method in actually applying with uh, the French railways, with some agricultural, uh, I mean, agricultural product community in order to develop uh, different kinds of packaging and delivery of food. Uh, and this is being used, used in a number of management uh, areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, they, uh, that part of which they are doing has, you know, they even work with Dom Perignon in designing a new champagne. So mm-hmm. there the question becomes, we have a patrimony, but there is modern taste and diversity of tastes that are emerging. Should we keep to the patrimony or should we bring science and patrimony in such a way that we can create new forms of champagne? Mm. Right? I'm just giving you that as an example. Yeah. So it is again the composition of knowledge allows you to rethink what is that the object is. Right. The, the object has multiple identities, but which identity is what you want to produce in, in the user or in the uh, people involved in it, you can see, right, the, the the cascading effects of that. Yeah, yeah, and so, so, so that, so that, that's kind of the foundation for thinking about design theory. I want to jump into another paper: mm-hmm. um, shared memory in design, a unifying mm-hmm. theme for research and practice, right. uh, where you present a new unifying theme for design theory by emphasizing the importance of context. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you arrive at your conclusions by examining and then criticizing the legitimacy of universal methods in design mm-hmm. uh, and, and sort of the critical importance of context uh, emerges in there. You want to talk talk a bit about that? 
Yes. Um, let me uh, uh, say a few things in the beginning. If yeah. you look at uh, when technology came to India or brought to India sometimes like biotech or there several times I've seen, is the technology is dropped and people go away. It is not the technology that is doing the technical transformation. Mm. It is the entire context in which it is going to be placed. How is it going to sustain itself? How is it going to deal with it? Right? Yeah. That is one part. That is because you are taking a, a, a something from one place which have a collective memory of use of that kind of technology on a day-to-day -day basis embedded in the society. Right? Mm. And it, they have been acculturized to use it over a period of time. And then you take that and put it somewhere else what happens is the whole thing falls apart. There are hundreds and hundreds of such projects which have failed. Yeah. Right? And, and that is because, in fact, there is a book by uh, Kentaro Toyama, and it's called The Geek's Revenge. <laughs> uh, basically, he's talking about technological utopia, which doesn't take into consideration the local uh, conditions in a way. Because it's not just the technology, it's the institutions and so on. Right. There are people who have done that extremely well, and more often they are indigenous in the sense, indigenous to the country yeah. who have built institutions. So that is why this disembodied notion of design is uh, very dangerous because mm. then it makes you blind. You know? <laughs> right. Yeah. So transplanting technology from one domain to another, uh, you know, sort of prescriptively. Um, there have been many examples of that not not working. Uh, so, so are you saying, Sub, that if if somebody from the new domain um, understands the foreign technology and then incorporates that into the into the new domain, it has a higher chance of success? Absolutely. You see, this is where the notion of a designer comes into play. Of The local people are also designers in the sense that they're going to help you design the constitutive part of running the technology in that place. Yeah. You may have to train them. You may, they, some may come up. So they may have particular cases. Uh, uh, let me give you a quick case study of something sure. I did in India while I was. When we were in Andhra Pradesh, we, we were not in Andhra Pradesh, we did some studies of villages for electric power at one point when we were there. Yeah. We found this isolated community, which was a basket weaving community. And in the evenings, the shavings of the ba basket, uh, the, the straw or the bamboo pieces were all brought together to some place and they'll set fire and exchange collective stories and that was a very important part of their community hmm. now i say okay i'm going to take away all of that and then i'm going to give you a biogas plant mm -hmm. now suddenly you are not just distorting their lives you are distorting their social fabric also in some ways right, right. so that's where you need to talk to them how do you want to do it what is the alternative way of creating your social fabric while also trying to advance, take advantage of this resource you may have. So this is a sort of a discussion with them because we know people can manage their own lives quite well locally, you know, mm -hmm. especially when it comes to common resources. 
So especially based on Ostrom's work, Eleanor Ostrom, the Nobel laureate's work, you can see that locally people are able to manage without intervention from outside. But if you're going to have an intervention, then you also have the responsibility for the people to accept, adopt, and be comfortable with actually running it and becoming it, making it become part of their lives. That's where the context comes. Mm. Okay. And so, so the transplantation of technology is, is pretty clear. Uh, but I was also thinking, Sub, that for the indigenous designer, um, you know, that that individual could have set of biases and let's call it memory errors. So, you know, that designer sees a foreign technology, uh, he or she might get enamored by the technology, right? So at the end of the day, even if the design, uh, the initial thinking was right from a context perspective, ultimately you might end up with, uh, with something that is almost transplantation. I know I was thinking about, um, you know, I was thinking about movies in <laughs> in South India. Mm-hmm. You know, I grew up in Kerala and uh, it had, you know, sort of a very distinct uh, movie culture in the mm-hmm. in the 60s mm-hmm. and 70s. And uh, in the 80s and 90s, you know, they they started borrowing, uh, let's call it concepts from um, Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And attempted to shape those uh, concepts in the in the culture in the culture and the context that existed, and uh, from at least this is a biased view from my perspective, they were you know total failures. Mm-hmm. And so, so the designer actually matters, I think. Uh, yes, here also you see. I mean, what is interesting is we one of the things. I, I don't know, as a country or uh, as a, a community of people, have to preserve certain traditions and ideas, right? Now, more centralized the movie making is, more centralized the, uh, uh, what do you call, uh, the thematics of movies that are generated and, and uh, purely entered through the commercial market, yeah. then you're going to see all kinds of distortions which you see as much in Hollywood or anywhere else. Right. 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 On the other hand, this is where the state, in my mind, mm-hmm. should come in and encourage movie makers, as they did in those days. In fact, 60s and 70s, many, many states had their own little film board encouraging yeah. artists. This is a, also a very vital part of keeping the debate of what is acceptable and what is not. You mm-hmm. see, uh, I remember one Hollywood producer saying that I'm a seller of dreams. I'm not interested in what people's lives are. They're already having a tough time. I'm just giving them dreams. But is that the only role of movie and communication in a society? How do we broaden it? Those questions have to come into play in the the discussions at the social level as well, right? Right, right. Yeah, so so, we are designing it. We are designing it by neglect in some ways. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so so in the paper you say, I think this is a point uh, you made already. If we accept that the design process transforms needs, Mm -hmm. we must also recognize that the requirements based on needs are linked with economic, social, political, legal, ecological, Mm-hmm. And firm-specific factors reconciled with scientific and technological factors. So, 
So in a world that is um, maybe seeking to converge, mm -hmm. um, would you say there is more of a focus on the scientific and technological factors and not the social, political, legal, and ecological uh, factors uh, in, design, uh, in design thinking? I would say so. You, I'm not saying it is completely devoid of it. I know everybody is like that. You know, yeah. there are people practicing a much more holistic way of thinking about this around the world, known or unknown, or hidden or otherwise. You know, yeah. <laughs> uh, nevertheless, uh, what is happening is this technological utopia. You know, uh, you know, we have a lot, for example, we have a lot of people in India. Do you really need contact tracing through phones or how do you use people and phones in a way that you don't have to, you can both give them, uh, you know, use people when they are not working or when uh, they're also contributing to the community mm -hmm. and use in a limited way other ways of doing it rather than saying, I'm going to build a cool app tracing without <laughs> about what the implications are mm. you see i mean now we are facing the same problem here in the us also right you see i go in and look at some uh, web pages and other things and i find out that so many apps are looking at so many things of yours and i have to go in very carefully and go one by one to delete them <laughs> right. want them yeah so the, onus of privacy maintenance has been pushed down to me. Right. Do I really want it? Does everybody want it? This question was never asked, right? Mm -hmm. Only now people are talking about ethics in AI, ethics in various things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, so you say uh, so there is growing evidence that context-free universal methods are most often inapplicable and inappropriate in design practice. It's inappropriate. We have to yeah. compose the design method that is required in the context to mobilize the knowledge required to frame the problem and collectively solve the problem. And just to set the stage for the book, what do you mean by shared memory? See, shared memory is a lot of things in different levels. One, there is memory of your own experience experiences you have shared with others by which you construct your collective, uh, you relate your memory to other other people's memory of your life, of your childhood, whatever, yeah. and so on. Similarly, societies have managed to create a collective memory in terms of science, technology, culture, all of these things, right? right. So, the, the, the collective memory comes not just in recorded documents, but also in an ephemeral sense in the people, right? right? So that is maintained and that persists. And without that, we will never progress because we'll be keeping on repeating the same mistakes. Going back to Petrovsky, failure is the unifying theme of design, right? You correct failures. So that part with of what happened before and what worked and what didn't work is an integral part of how we can move forward. It's the same thing, right? Uh, about uh, when you take a technology which was developed somewhere else, the way it evolved there is not the same way 
evolved in a social context is not the same way it evolves in another place. Right? So that is because of the local practices. People start using phones in different ways. Uh, uh, I don't know whether you know this missed call business of trying to minimize cost in India mm. as a way for people who are poorer to call you and shut it off and then you call them so that you pay for the oh, call. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So th these are all local cultural practices which are adapting to the technology as well. So this is a co-evolving process. And in that, we are bringing different memories. You, you see what I mean? Yeah. Of social connection and so on. And even in, in the way the cities are built, right? You go to an Indian city, you go to an American city, you won't find marriage halls. You go to <laughs> India, you will find marriage yeah. halls, right? And if you look at the transportation, to a large extent, these social functions create a lot of transportation in the Indian context, not in, in a much larger uh, numbers, right? So uh, Indian marriages are there are 500 people, so 500 cars show up or whatever. You see what I mean? Right, right. Yeah, so, so shared memory uh, is also dynamic. So it's yes. changing. It's changing over time. Yes. And, and we can, uh, I want to ask you this when we get into the book, um, mm -hmm. you know, and that is um, shared memory could also uh, sort of accumulate a lot of memory errors, uh, what I call memory errors. Uh, and and I, I, I want to uh, talk to you about that. But let's get into the book. So mm -hmm. the book is, uh, just came out, right? Uh, it's it's uh, called mm -hmm. We Are Not Users, Dialogues, Diversity, and Design. Yes. Uh, it's already out there, right? Yeah, it's out there. It came out in March. It's a, it's on MIT Press, uh, available uh, Amazon or wherever. Yeah. Okay, okay. So yeah. let's uh, set some definition. So, mm -hmm. you, you know, the initial part of the book, uh, you talk about artifacts. So artifacts mm -hmm. meaning objects, articles, items, products, and goods uh, that populate the, the material environment mm -hmm. uh, and mediate our sensory experiences from the mundane to the marvelous, you say. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also say that, um, you know, they also can they also include sense and experience. Mm -hmm. And so, so they're, they're both tangible and abstract uh, mm -hmm. in a way. So you, you want to, you want to set the stage for why, why artifacts are important and uh, how you think about it? Yeah. Artifacts have multiple roles, you know. The first artifact you want to think of is language. Yeah, because that is when where the, the evolution of language as an artifact in human life is what allowed us to cooperate, to be able to uh, uh, you know coordinate ourselves to for uh, for what do you call hunting and also for agricultural purposes, the notion of dividing labor and communication patterns. That's what made us grow bigger and bigger in a way, right? Yes. So from that point of view, there are two things that are happening in a human environment. The whole notion of cooperation brings different experiences. The whole notion of coordination brings different ways of working together. Right? Mm. These two things are very critical. So your constitution, you have to build artifacts for both. One is an abstract artifact, like the constitution is an abstract artifact to some extent, right? Mm -hmm. So that abstract artifact sets the rules of behavior in a country. 
and we continuously evolve. Um, in fact, there is a quote from Jefferson, I don't have it with me, in the Jefferson Memorial, he says that if I'm not a person, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, I'm yes. not a person who wants to change the constitution all the time. However, one uh, has to be careful that the, uh, that the clothes you bought for a young boy will fit him. <laughs> So, in in itself, he's he's saying the dynamism of a society requires that the constitution be interpreted in context as you grow up, right? Right. It's, so, in a sense, all designs have this. So, whether it is a constitution at the big level or a local city council creating its own rules hmm. right, of changing the way it operates. Right. So, so there is the there is the coordinative part, and there is a more knowledge centric cooperative uh, part where you are trying to bridge the experiences through language and other things. And at you know it could have unexpected effects too. So you say that you talk about Facebook or any any kind mm -hmm. of social platform. Mm -hmm. uh, the platform and the people are joined by a one way relationship of utility. The platform provides a service, the people use that service. But uh, you ask, uh, is that really the case when people's online profiles are mined to provide targeted information to influence voting decisions? The relationship of people to these platforms is not just uh, that of use. Uh, it becomes political, it becomes much more complex. Right? Well, so I tell you, you have evidence of that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so so our expectations of artifacts um, uh, may not be, uh, perhaps it has some static meaning, but where it evolves into is sort of stochastic, right? We can't really expect what could happen to them. No, it, it won't. Okay. There are several questions here, okay? I mean, let me unpack them one by one. Yeah. How fast should an artifact evolve itself is a question. Mm. Okay. If you speed up the evolution of the artifact, just like the guy uh, in a developing country can't adopt to a adapt to a technology, neither can a developing country, a developed country person who's bombarded with changing technology. We yep. are in the same state of affairs. So really, we need to ask the question, look, I'm not against any form of innovation. I'm saying even innovation has to be contextual in a different way based on a certain set of values. Mm -hmm. I mean, you take the example of Sidewalk Cafe in Toronto, it eventually Google walked away because people said, no, we don't want you to look at our data and sell our data. We don't want to do this. Right. Right, And that is a very significant part of the way of both understanding the technology and be able to know what is that it is doing to you, right? Mm -hmm. this, it has to be a bi-directional relationship. It cannot be unidirectional. I decide what I want to do and then we'll figure out whether it fits or not. Right. Okay. Of course, many people will argue with me that is how innovation takes place and society is behind, laws are behind, and there's nothing you can do. I'm not so sure. Mm. So, so that's interesting. So from a design perspective, Sub, you argue that uh, 
you know, any artifact, a web made of social, political, economic, and cultural threads, they're always there. So from a design perspective, uh, if I understand this correctly, so correct me if I'm wrong, mm. you are saying during design, the, the features uh, of that artifact are, are sort of known. So it's not that it's not like the artifact is going to evolve into a, into an unknown. Is that what mm -hmm. you're saying? Yes, it is not going to evolve into an unknown. We have a history, right? Yeah. If you go back, whether you take uh, breakdown of monopolies in the twenties or the call for breaking down of this, they all have a s simple logic which which says that monopolistic power reduces the power of the citizens in some fashion. We know that. Yeah. Right? It's not news right in that sense right. so so the question is how do we how do we think about our society and say okay if that is the case we have faced certain consequences how do we keep the laws of course this is where ideology and politics comes into play people try to pull in two different directions right hmm. however these directions of where they are pulling is not fully articulated to the common man hmm. it's just it just is, you know. Right. It, it, so this is where evoking the notion of an individual as a designer, he can ask the he or she can ask the question: Who is doing it? What is being done? Why it is being done? Right? And yeah. how it is being done? These these four simple questions unravel the political, social motive, or even the localized technical motive in the same way, right? If I want to solve a problem, I may need a mechanical engineer, electrical engineer, et cetera, et cetera. Why? I need to do the modeling. I need to do this. I have a sense of what is that that goes together, right? Yeah. Then, but, but, but um, at home too. Yeah. Yeah. But, but uh, the designer could make mistakes though, right? So even in the, See, in the presence I, what, of information. Yeah. What I want to say is what I'm interested in minimizing the mistake here right. is the designer the ultimate authority or the person who is coming with their design perspective is a facilitator of this knowledge to come together and bring methods from various places in order to help the process of design to take place right instead of I, the designer, that is where the problem starts. Because as soon as you do that, you automatically lose, uh, you, you, you become blind to some extent. I'm not saying all, the, some of the most brilliant designers are not subject to this kind of uh, uh, narrow uh, tunnel vision, you know? Right. But, but the designers, um... Uh, more generally, the design can only be evaluated um, in the in the context of information that existed at the time of the design, right? So, if, if information is stochastic, if new information arrived that the designer wasn't aware of, could not have reasonably predicted, then the designer is not at fault, right? No. The question is always this, right? That's why we have this notion of temporary closure. Yeah. Every design is a temporary closure because you want the design to be put in to do something, right? So you are aware that you are putting in there with potential problems. And now what you do is you look for what the potential problems it is causing, right? 
yeah. and then see how you correct it in the next round. So there is a learning. Uh, the epistemological uh, process doesn't stop when the, uh, once the object is out of the door. Right. It continues. And hence, that's why you have versions, you have all kinds of things as we learn more and more. Right. Right. So design should be thought of as a series of temporary closures, which have to be adapted and changed in the context in which it operates and and the requirements of the context in which it operates. Okay, so that's why you say in the book, shaping, crafting, composing, creating, building, engineering, fashioning, manufacturing, constructing, all of this can be substituted by this one word designing. So, so designing is really um, an all encompassing construct uh, that is not static. Uh, and and it's, it, it is changing, right? It, it mm-hmm. has to change. Any artifact right. designed at time equal to zero could be better designed at time equal to one. Exactly. Could okay. be better designed, provided you are able to learn more about the effects of the artifact, right? Right, right. So the, so the design has to be a reflective process, reflect on the design, in the design process, and so on, you know? Yeah. Unless it is a reflective process, you won't correct errors. If you don't correct errors, you perpetuate it. It's a, I'm using very simple concepts of what happens during a design and how a design uh, failures drive design and hence for knowledge and then another temporary closure and you keep going. Yeah, and, and, and the other aspect here is one of diversity. So you say we need designing to be the field it was imagined to be a field of study that embraces this uh, multidisciplinary diversity and draws from science, engineering, technology, social sciences, philosophy, and art. Mm-hmm. And, and you could think about diversity in other dimensions too. Right. And so, so is this something that you know, I'm going to think about more mm-hmm. from a prescriptive perspective? So if I were to look at a, a, a design mm-hmm. and I want to assign a score to it, Mm-hmm. Um, would I would I always have diversity as a as a important attribute in that score? For me, yes, absolutely. Diversity here connects directly to the kind of knowledge different people in the group will bring to address the problem. Okay. Okay. So. Diversity, in some cases, two electrical engineers may do the job, but be careful there. One electrical engineer may be a control engineer, and the other electrical engineer may be a power flow engineer, whatever. You see what I mean? They, the sub-discipline. There is also diversity there. But some form of diversity is required, especially from conception to production to actually implementation, the diversity of uh, needs, diversity of uh, knowledge, which uh, prior knowledge and collective knowledge that comes into play are brought together. So from that point of view, when you create an artifact, you're actually creating, quote unquote, a theory of the artifact. You say this will work under these conditions Mm -hmm. because I know I can say it will work under these conditions. But this theory is interesting because it is taking fragments of theories from different disciplines and composing some 
theory, which is a narrative with some models, some descriptions, and all of those things, which is in the head of the people. That is why it is a horizontal theory, because it is connecting different disciplines to a theory towards a particular artifact. So you can see why diversity becomes important. How wide is this horizontal theory required uh, that is required to be created for the for the uh, generation of the artifact itself. Okay, okay. So, so would you would you? I'm think not of... the only one saying this. You know, Scott Page and yeah, other people have written about uh, diverse effect of diversity in problem solving. Yeah. So, so would you would you think of diversity as something that provides a higher level of flexibility in the design, uh, so that that has you know uh, higher utility over time. Or is it something that reduces the error uh, at time equal to zero? So, what, 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 where does diversity get, you know, uh, imparts the, the highest value? The highest value for diversity starts at time zero, yeah. really, because uh, it's, I, I don't want to think about it as error. I, I think about it as, incompleteness in the description of the problem you are trying to solve that's yes. where the problem is right so how well you can describe the problem and solve it is is where the diversity comes into play let me give you one example sure. from the automotive industry if you look at clark and fujimoto's book on uh, product development you will see that the overlap of disciplines in the Japanese production system is very high of mm. different functional disciplines. Mm. Okay? Whereas the American model, which was dominant and is changing all the time, was a linear model. Right. Whereas in that one, understanding non-linearity, you're, you're, you're trying to buffer non-linearity by overlap. In a sense, what you were talking about, the stochastic nature of design and it will change, the less you take diversity into account, the more potential for uncertainty and stochasticity that will come. Hmm. So more non-linearity is, 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 will potentially enter. Right? But you want to get a sense of what the non-linearity is and hence you are able to anticipate failures better. Yes. Yes, yeah, that that sounds that sounds right. Um, so I want to dig a little deeper into shared memory. So that's mm -hmm. the, the second chapter of your book, and you say that the shared memory of the artifact is different from the shared memory of designing. Mm -hmm. It is a difference between writing an essay uh, on the weather and learning to construct uh, a good argument. Mm -hmm. You you want to differentiate between the two? Yes, the shared memory of the artifact can be how the artifact was used, what, what is inside it, and uh, how is it built. Now, the how is it built is, is it just the putting together of the parts or the process by which the product came into being? Okay. Yeah. The history of design process, if you go back, whether it is Vitruvius or all the other people in between, they are talking about the method method of design. How can I design it? What do I need to do to design it? Simon's characterization is also about a process of design. It is not concentrating on the artifact. Artifact is the end product. Mm -hmm. right? 
I can have drawings of the artifact. One of the big problems of archiving uh, drawings and other things is somebody has to interpret it later on right. Right? to see what the process they followed to arrive at what they did. So there are two different kinds of memory. Yeah. Uh, if you think about apprentice guilds and apprentice master, there is a sh uh, transfer of shared memory of process as much as the artifact. Mm. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so does shared memory um, set the context? Um, you say context is crucial when it comes to designing. Even if uh, two groups are given the same task, they will end up with different designs, uh, mm -hmm. given different contexts. Mm -hmm. And so, so this goes back to what we were talking about before. If you transplant a technology from domain A to domain B, uh, location, it, I would say location A to location B. Yeah. Location A to location B. Uh, it has lower chance of success because of a lack of context. Now, there is also a sort of a lack of shared memory there, right? That, that, is, yes. that is sort of the underlying uh, disease, so to speak. Yes, yes. There is also a lack of shared memory because I don't have any memory of how the community works or does or anything, right? I don't share anything. I just come there and drop the technology. Doesn't work, right? Because yeah. I don't share with them. So now I have to to pull the collective pull the collective memory into the design process to create a new collective memory here, right? As shared memory evolves. And as you start doing this, you understand the dynamics of how to incorporate this technology in the context of that particular location. Now you're actually drawing on both your shared memory and in the process creating a new shared memory in which you may discover new ways of doing things. Now, the, not just the artifact, you also can learn about the process which could potentially inform future processes as a precedent, you know? Right, right. And then, you know, from a, from a practical perspective, um, as, you, as you think further about this, you say as the complexity of the objects designed grew, labor had to be divided, leading to a split between the designer and the practitioner. And so, so this is this is happening. Um, this has happened. It's happening more and more nowadays, right? Mm -hmm. You get specialization. That's correct. Now, the issue is not that we have to get rid of division of labor. Right? I mean, even our human body has division of labor. Yeah. So it's how this division of labor is organized and implemented. So, for example, uh, I divide the labor, but I don't let any of the departments talk to each other. Think about it now as a as a structure you're designing. Okay? Yeah. Or you precisely define what can be exchanged between the departments so that you have control over the work in some form. Let's assume that. Right mm -hmm. Now what happens, any uh, issue, contingency or problem that comes in one, may not get transmitted outside. Right. If it doesn't get transmitted, then it can slowly create a cascade. Mm. I, mean, I don't want to uh, blame anybody. Uh, even if the local officials in China, when they did not inform people and stopped people from informing, what did they create? There's a whole organization and division of labor, but the flow of information was blocked. In right. some form or the other, it's the same thing with any 
organism in our in our body we have the nervous system and the blood system which is carrying information all the time to everybody mm. whereas in, in order to make sure we can get things done and so on we impose certain constraints and how we want to communicate and this is the same kind of thing you can see in the japanese organization like toyota flow of information is one thing that is uh, very very critically observed and monitored between different groups so that the faster i get an information the faster i can correct right if you can solve most of the problem in the first 20% of the time your unit cost for change will decrease over time because it's cheaper to change in the front right than later again there also diversity is an interesting way of thinking about it yeah and so um you know the, the in modern times is, so you say that before the industrial revolution the shared memory of the artifact was transmitted through two modes parent mm-hmm. to child and master to apprentice mm-hmm. and and such a system worked well uh when you know the information transmitted was very limited mm-hmm. uh but that's not the situation we are in today right we have a very large amount of highly technical information that needs to be transmitted mm-hmm. and so um you know does shared memory work anymore in the modern context yeah we have a different form of shared memory now we have a uh, we are able to create a different kind of shared memory in the in, in the collective of the digital collectives in various places they also get fragmented but this is where we need to think about how this new shared memory can be used by other people in more and more meaningful ways mm. so it's just that what we have done over the years is we have found ways to enhance the coding and transmission of this incredibly dispersed collective memory of humanity right in a way we are trying to bring it together so there also is embedded and these are also part of it just as books were just as manuals were yeah <clears throat> they have a same function it's again how society wants to mobilize it use it <clears throat> and and what are the values it wants to embed in the way it thinks about your, itself in using these technologies in the best way yeah no um i'll just let you <laughs> react to this i'll make a statement and let you react to it to get your insight so you. you know i i could think about uh shared memory you know sort of uh it has a level of standardization in, in it education institutions are perpetuating shared memory one could argue yes and that is uh dampening knowledge creation perhaps you know so for example if you look at high energy physics um you know theory of relativity or quantum mechanics didn't really happen because of shared memory it was actually breaking away from uh shared memory to to create something completely new so do you see a situation where societies become sort of stagnant because of shared memory it depends on how you, if shared memory is evolving right there yeah. may be periods of stagnation there may be periods of burst but in general new memory is created by the collision of different ways of thinking even industrial revolution as i as we point out is because people working with their hands and people who are thinking or whatever 
thinkers and doers came together in a way, right? It's this, it, it's this, uh, what do you call, bringing together that creates new energies or new thoughts. Right? So shared memory cannot be thought, we discussed a lot about shared memory, the term itself, because sometimes it has a static notion, but what we really mean is a constantly evolving structure. Right. right. And so, so if you think of it that way, yes, countries can stagnate. Now, we don't want to go into why they stagnate <laughs> yeah. and so on without going to that. In some ways, I would argue <clears throat> the non-circulation of the kind of knowledge embedded in our country in India, that is, my, I, I mean, I'm an American, uh, in, the, in the country we come from, <laughs> is that the that the flow of knowledge was not as fluid as it became during industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and because of that, even though we were ahead, uh, India was ahead in a lot of technologies, it couldn't match the kind of composition of knowledge that allowed for scaling and amplification for people who came from outside and we couldn't. Yeah, yeah. But I was thinking, you know, um, more tactically, Sab, you know, so uh, from a design perspective, um, you know, the, the intervention to COVID, for example, mm -hmm. uh, if we take a society, its belief system, its culture, its knowledge, its contemporary knowledge, and you say all of those should really influence the design Mm -hmm. I wondered what we get, actually. <laughs> you know, take the U.S., for example. Well, unfortunate, but true. Because I don't think this would have happened 10 years ago, five years ago. Mm -hmm. We are in a particular historic situation, which is what is creating this dissonance in the U.S. context. But look at other countries, New Zealand, Norway, you know, even Kerala, for example. Why, is, why am I saying even <laughs> Kerala, Kerala is going to do a job, right? It has 33 yeah. million people. It's not a joke. Right. Right? Uh, and densely populated people. This is where I think what has happened, as people have pointed out, uh, science, the knowledge from science is being rejected in the way things are being done. This is a classic example of instead of synthesis, you are actually creating division. And when you do that, then you will naturally will not produce the right kind of results. And that's what we are witnessing in a way. Yeah. Yeah. So I struggled a little bit, you know, thinking about this. So uh, this may not be the right way to think about it, sir. So, you know, if I look at a spectrum, Mm -hmm. I could see the scientific process uh, on one side of this, which mm -hmm. is sort of, I would argue, one directional, you know, a bit like <laughs> entropy. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, it's progressing in sort of a linear way, one directionally. Uh, and then you have the design approach on the other side, which is basically, if I understand it correctly, uh, is saying a, a design should incorporate all possible information, uh, not only, you know, so sort of tangible information, but also the culture, uh, memories, and, and all of that into design. And 
if you take a you know sort of a limit of the spectrum either end of this i find uh, humanity having a tough time because the the scientific process um so we can look at norway for example they have actually changed or changing their education system by saying there is no point learning physics chemistry and biology you know they're not saying there's no point but really kind of design it uh looking forward uh rather than you know uh thinking about it very prescriptively what you need to learn um and so so i think there has to be some drastic measures on on the scientific arena from an education perspective for this to work i totally agree with you in fact i have very very close friends in norway and i watched his children grow from when they were 4 to uh, now young adults as petroleum engineers and architects and i found it very fascinating because they don't have any grades till fifth grade and i've been to their schools i found it actually very liberating mm. to watch that because in some ways we are trying to channel people into slots too early yeah in life okay especially in india it's worse <laughs> nevertheless yeah uh, nevertheless it's that notion of exploration you have to keep alive right and this is something i'm doing my best not to interfere in my son's education <laughs> and telling him explore what you want you know right it's precisely that explorative uh uh aspect of a child is removed then you don't get any form of creativity they are lost they get lost right. at various times of course they manage but that's not the point right yeah yeah i i, I, I in fact our my goal or i would say more than my goal my uh, co-author yoram raik at the moment actually is using some of the concepts in the book in uh, uh, teaching actual courses in tel aviv yeah both to his engineering group engineering school and now he's also doing across campus under some social innovation kind of structure within the university uh, so the idea there he's bringing all these people together to come together to solve certain problems he's finding that it is very hard for them to transcend that mm-hmm. and it takes a lot of coaching and effort to get them to get out of their comfort zone in this into this sort of soft zone okay. yeah so that's what i was going to ask ask uh, in conclusion so you know do you think this area which seems to have you know its own language its own way of thinking should that be a um an area that uh, undergraduate institutions really as a discipline i should say uh, have incorporated into the education system what i mean is the design theory the way that you articulated yes and in fact we did do that at carnegie mellon we yeah. had uh, we had a course which was all across anybody from campus could come at the undergraduate level as well as graduate and we had industrial designers english students you know students who were doing english and technical writing computer scientists all kinds of engineers mm. one of the things we wanted to convey there and which we were very pleased about was that some of the students came back and said you know i never thought i would need an english student to do my work <laughs> and 
And we also observed certain things that often the student from technical writing often became the group leader because that person, he or she, had to collate all of these different ideas into a coherent whole. Mm. So they become the interlocutor between them, right, as a writer. So you find all these interesting dynamics that comes about whereby, first of all, people start having respect for the other discipline. Mm. Oh, you don't say, oh, he's an English major. Oh, he's history. I'm engineer. (laughs) This implicit hierarchy which we build in our own minds, that has to be broken down. And it's still continuing. I taught for 10 years and Mm. it's still being continued by another colleague of mine. Yeah, yeah. So, so this has been great, Sub. Uh, thanks so much for spending uh, time with me. And uh, good luck with uh, all your research in this area. Yeah, thank you very much. And it is really a pleasure talking to you. I hope I was able to answer almost all your questions at, at, the, yes, best, <laughs> at the best possible way I could. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, the, the book is very well written. I really enjoy I didn't read it uh, in full, obviously, but I, I enjoyed reading it. Okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye. Bye.